anything that's not the gospel uh, is actually a damnable offense. When we take away from or add to the truth of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, uh, it's, it's a damnable offense, and Paul is warning us about this. Now, what's interesting to note is, is in the first century church, sometimes in the life of the Apostle Paul, it's difficult to, to figure out dates. Um, you know, this was a long time ago, and they didn't track things the way that we track things now. Um, but it's thought by many that uh, Paul is writing this letter maybe about 12 to 15 years uh, after the birth of the church after the birth of the church in Acts chapter 2. And so, so it didn't take very long, really, in the grand scheme of things, for the church to begin to buy into uh, things that were not the gospel, to begin to listen to the false teachers. And so in our verse today, Paul is presenting some dichotomies or things that, that, are, that don't go together, things that are opposites of one another. And so in order to unpack uh, really three dichotomies in our text, I want to ask, Three questions. If, if you uh, have heard me preach much, you know that I like to ask questions. I'm a, I'm a, I have an analytical mind. So I like to ask questions and then attempt to answer those questions. And so uh, three questions that I'm going to ask is, uh, who are we persuading? Who are we pleasing? And who are we serving? Who are we persuading? Who are we pleasing? And who are we serving? And then after we look at these three questions and these three dichotomies that Paul is bringing in our text today, I'm going to ask a, a final question uh, that hopefully... Uh, will help give us some perspective. And that final question is, what is good news to you? So, so maybe as you're sitting here now, uh, think about what, what is good news, right? If, if you got a letter in the mail uh, saying that you won a large sum of money, right, that might be good news. Like, What is good news to you? So let's dive right in. And so in Galatians 1 verse 10, Paul asks this question, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? And so my first question, who is it that we're persuading? This word approval in the original language uh, that the Bible was written in could be translated as persuading. The ESV, which I'm preaching out of, has chosen to render it as approval. Whose approval am I seeking, that of man or God? But, but the idea behind this word is, who is it that I'm trying to persuade? Paul's asking, do you think that I'm trying to persuade God? to come to our way of thinking, or am I trying to persuade people to come to God's way of thinking? Well, what would make more sense? If, if there is a God, if He loves us, if He's the creator of the universe, if He's sovereign over all, meaning that He's in control of everything, if there's nothing that happens in the entirety of the cosmos outside of the purview of God the creator... Would it make sense that we would persuade God to come to our way of thinking? It's kind of ridiculous when we think about it that way, is it not? And so Paul is asking this question of the Galatians in the introduction to his letter. Who is, who is it that we're trying to, to change the mind of? Are we trying to change the mind of God or are we trying to change the mind of us who God created? Paul's message is one of humanity being reconciled to God, the creation being reconciled to its creator. Not a message of God somehow being reconciled to humanity as if God needs to make amends to us. It doesn't work that way. God does not fit our mold. Yet that doesn't stop us as humans of, of trying to make God fit into who we think that He ought to be. Pastor and author Tim Keller says something to the effect of this, that if your God never challenges you or if your God never offends you, 
maybe your God is just an idealized version of you. Think about that. If in your view of God it never rubs up against you, if in who you think of God to be never challenges you in some way, maybe you've created a God in your own mind that's just a better version of who you are. And we do that. We do that. We, we say things like, well, a loving God could never do this. And fill in the blank with whatever it is that you think a loving God would never do. A sovereign God who's in control of everything would never do this. And fill in the blank with whatever it is you think a sovereign God would never do. And, and we don't often allow the Bible to challenge or even offend our way of thinking. And this is a point that Paul is trying to make. Like, which way is it going here? Again, are we trying to make God fit into a mold that we've created for Him? Or not even that, but a mold that's palatable to us? Or are we allowing the authority of the Creator to shape our lives? Fundamentally, if there's a Creator, and I'm not saying if because I'm questioning it, but if in the logical sense, if there's a Creator... If there's someone who's responsible for everything, if Colossians 1 is true that, that everything is by Him and for Him and through Him, if that's true, then we as the creation should be subject to the Creator, should we not? And if we're not subject to the Creator, then we stand condemned in rebellion against that Creator. Anything that teaches otherwise is not the gospel. Big G, capital G, the gospel. Gospel is, it, it's a Bible, we, we use this word a lot. We throw it out a lot, but it's a word that just means good news. Right? Earlier I asked him, we're going to at the end talk about what is good news to you. Gospel is a word that means good news. And, and if anything else is true, except that there is a creator and the creation is subject to the creator, anything that, that alters that is not the gospel, it's not good news. And we'll explore in a moment why that's not good news. And this is what Paul was warning the churches at Galatia about. They've started to buy into a false narrative of what the gospel is. Either by adding to it or taking away from it, they're altering the truth of the good news of the gospel. So Paul asking, whose approval am I seeking? Or in other words, who am I trying to persuade? Are we persuading God to come to our ways or are we persuading mankind, our fellow humans, to come to the ways of God? And then he asks a second question. And he says, or am I trying to please man? Am I trying to please man? Trying to please mankind? Am I trying to please people? Now, this might be hard to imagine. If, if you know anything about the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul, he, he was somebody in the world before he came to know Christ. He had a reputation. He was respected. Uh, he was feared. He was a persecutor of the church, persecutor of Christians. He had a rather impressive pedigree, was well-educated, came from a good family. People, people knew who he was. And then he had this encounter with Christ, and his life was forever changed from that moment forward. And Paul um, of his own admission, would say that he's, he's a nobody from the time that he came to know Christ. And his life was very difficult from that point forward. He became one who was one who was persecuted or persecuting the church who became persecuted by the religious people of his day because of his adherence to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Everywhere that Paul went, he would face opposition. 
he would go into a town and he would go first usually to the synagogue and, and he would preach truth to them and he would stir the pot and people would be mad at him and sometimes they would beat him, sometimes they would have him thrown in jail. There was one instance where he went into a town and he proclaimed the truth and they drug him outside of the town and they tried to stone him to death. They threw rocks at him until he at least was supposedly dead. We don't know if he actually died or not, but, but somehow he came back from it, whether he wasn't quite dead or whether he was all the way dead and God raised him. And then he went back into the town. Like, this is kind of crazy. So this is Paul. And so, so imagine this. Paul in his day, given all of that to be true, was accused by some of being a people pleaser. Now, if we, we read his story and we know that, that usually when he went places, he had opposition. It doesn't make sense why they would call him a people pleaser. But, but some people thought that Paul would go over here and he would preach one message to speak to the crowds and try to win the crowds over. And then he would go over here to the next place and he would preach a different message yet again trying to win the crowds over. Now, we know that this wasn't true of Paul, that he wasn't a people pleaser. Paul didn't pull any punches. Paul didn't compromise on the message of the truth, although he was accused of that. Let's think about for a second that in our, in our current culture today, how is it that we as Christians can sometimes be people pleasers? And sometimes we do this maybe not even fully conscious of the fact that we're doing it. But let, let's think about just in the context of, of a Christian church. Let's think about the context of, of the messages that we preach. How is it that we can be people pleasers? Well, here, here's a few things that just kind of came to mind this week as I was thinking about it. Sometimes we would have a tendency to emphasize God's love, but not talk about God's wrath. I've said before that the good news isn't that good if the bad news isn't that bad. And, and it's, it, there's, it's two sides of the same coin. There is good news that God loves us, but there is bad news that if we, if we don't submit our lives to Christ, it's not going to turn out well for us. And the Bible speaks of God's righteous judgment upon humanity who has not submitted their lives to Him. And so we can compromise our message and, and turn into people pleasers when we emphasize love without speaking of God's wrath. What about when we emphasize the forgiveness of sin, but we minimize the offense of our sin to a holy and a righteous God? Right, have you ever thought to yourself or maybe uttered to somebody else, not a big deal, God forgives? And that's true, God does forgive us of our sin. But it is a big deal. Right, and so, so, so we want to talk about forgiveness. We want to talk about the love of God. We want to minimize wrath and we want to minimize the offense of our sin how about we emphasize the message of grace unmerited favor god's unmerited favor to us what a great message that is that there's nothing else like it in the entire world there's nothing like it across all of the religions and all of the belief systems that are out there there's nothing like the grace of god but what happens when we emphasize the grace of God, and we minimize living lives that are obedient to the way that God commands us to live. What about emphasizing the self, right? My, my faith, my Christianity, it's just me and Jesus. My Christianity is about me. It's not about you. You don't get to tell me how to live out my faith. Because, again, it's me and Jesus. And in doing that, we minimize the community 
that God has given us. The Bible says that we're actually, as Christians, members of one another. We belong to one another. Paul uses in more than one occasion the analogy of a body, and it would be ridiculous to think of your own body if your thumb decided one day just to be independent. It couldn't happen. Or your little toe decided, you know what? It's just me and Jesus. I'm going to go over here and do my little toe thing apart from the rest of the body. It's ridiculous. And so sometimes we, we do these things because it makes the message of the gospel just a little bit more palatable to us, and it makes it a little more palatable to the world around us. I don't think there's any one of us that wants to walk out that door and start proclaiming the wrath of God. Right? And maybe you've seen people, do you ever see anybody stand on a street corner, maybe with a sandwich board and a bullhorn just proclaiming the wrath? Like nobody likes those people. Nobody listens to those people, and we don't want to do that. And I'm not saying that we should go do that. But, but I'm trying to get us to think about ways that, that maybe we don't even know that we try to please people by compromising the message in order to make it just a little bit more palatable. Not only do we do that individually, churches churches can do this. right? Because, hey, the more people that we get in the door, the more people that can hear the message. And so, so we need to tone down the talk about sin and wrath and judgment and, and let's beef up the talk about love and grace and forgiveness and all of those things. And we fill auditoriums with people who, who only get a partial gospel. Which, according to Paul, really is no gospel at all. Charles Spurgeon, one of, one of our, our favorite preachers, had this to say. He would not be the servant of Christ if he pleased men. Those whom we try to please are our masters. And if a man tries to please a populace or to please a refined few, these are his masters and he will be their flair. But if he tries to please God, then he is a free man indeed. And we'll talk a little more about freedom in a moment. But Charles Spurgeon, in agreement with Paul, saying that you can't please people and God at the same time. And I will tell you, just speaking for myself, I'm, I'm a... I'm a very experienced people pleaser, and I'm sure you are too. I came to faith at a really young age, and so I've grown up in the church, and I've made a life of trying to please people and trying to please God at the same time. And I think like maybe I've done better than most, I don't know. But Paul is telling us here that it's one or the other. You can't do both. You can't please God, you can't please man both at the same time. Now, there is in all of us, without a doubt, this, this insatiable desire to please people because it's tied to how people view us. Right? And, and you want to be liked, just like I do. You want to be respected, just like I do. And so we do things in our life. We live our lives in a way that people will like us and that people will respect us and that people will accept us. We live our lives in a way often where we don't want to offend people because we don't want to make our lives unnecessarily difficult. But Paul is reminding us that as Christians, we, we can't escape offending people because the message of the gospel, he tells us, is offensive. It's foolishness, he says, to those that are perishing. Paul would write in 1 Corinthians 10.33 that just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, I'm not seeking my own advantage 
but that of many that they may be saved. And so here's the Apostle Paul being accused of being a people pleaser. In 1 Corinthians, Sandy Cops, he's okay, I'm, I'm a people pleaser. But here's the thing. I'm not trying to please people for my own benefit. This is what you and I do. We please people because it benefits us. Paul is saying, I, I, yes, I please people, but I'm not seeking my own benefit. I'm not seeking my own advantage. My pleasing of people only goes insofar as that they may come to know Christ. Elsewhere, Paul would say, to the Jew, I become a Jew. To the strong, I become as if I'm strong. To the weak, I become as if I'm weak. He would say that I'll become all things to all people, not so that they like me, not so that, to quote a popular book, that I can win friends and influence people. I'll become all things to all people so that they may come to know Christ. So who is it that we're trying to please? Who are we trying to persuade? Are we trying to persuade God to come down to our way of thinking? Are we trying to persuade humanity to come to God's way of thinking? Who are we trying to please? Are we trying to please people for our own benefit? Are we trying to please God so that other people may come to know Him? And thirdly, Paul asks the question, or he makes a statement, and he says, if I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. And so the question is, who is it that we're serving? In asking the question, Paul is clearly telling us that, that you, can't, you can't serve people and you can't serve God at the same like there's there's a line and, and it's one or the other. It's one or the other. If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. So there's a fundamental opposition between pleasing people for your own benefit and being a servant of Christ. Our relationship with God is not one of a cruel master as we think about what it means to serve Christ. This word in the, in the Greek can be translated a few different ways when we speaking of servant. It can, it can mean a slave, as you would think of the slavery of the American South, that, that somebody's owned and is a piece of property. right? Not, not one of the greatest moments in American history. The word can be translated as a bond servant, which is really more of a willing slave someone who has a benevolent master and they go to work for their master willingly. Uh, or it can be translated just generally as a servant that's kind of somewhere between a slave and a bond servant. Just a general servant. And as we think about what it means to serve Christ, serving Christ is not that of an indentured servant like the American slave. God is not a cruel master that owns us. Serving Christ is, is not even that of a, of a bond servant. The idea of, of a bond servant in this, in this sense would be more of like a business arrangement. I'm going to come to work for you. You're going to be a good employer to me. Uh, at the end of a, of a contract period, for example, then, then my servitude would be up and I'll go my way and you go your way. Really, it's, it's a quid pro quo, to, to use a word that's in the news a lot lately. You do for me and I'll do for you. That, that's not our relationship with God. Right? God, God doesn't owe us because we do things for Him. God doesn't bless us because we do things for Him. This is not what Paul has in mind here. Paul has in mind being a servant of Christ is that, that we are living in submission to Christ. That we're living in submission 
to his rule and his authority, his benevolent rule and his gracious authority in our lives. And as we serve Christ, there's going to be a natural outflow that leads us to serve people. But as we talked about already, not not for our own benefit, not for our own gain, but so that, as Paul says, that, that others may come to know Christ. And so we become all things to all people so that we might win some to Christ. This is the kind of servant that Paul is talking about. He's putting in direct opposition to pleasing the people around us. Jesus would say in Matthew chapter 6 that where your treasure is, there your heart lies also. We, we treasure our reputations quite a bit. We want people to like us a lot. We want people to respect us a lot. And if that's what you treasure, Jesus is telling us, so that, that that's where your heart is going to be. And so I would challenge us to think about today, what, what is it that we treasure? Do we treasure knowing Christ? Do we treasure being liked and respected? Because it's, we can't have both. It's one or the other. Now, with all of this in mind, knowing that the system of the world is opposed to the design of God, I want to explore how some of these things play out. Let's put some flesh to some of these things that we're talking about. Remember, Paul is reminding people, he's warning the believers in Galatia not to buy into a false gospel. He's reminding them that the truth that he preached to them is the gospel. Not a gospel, but the gospel. So how does, how does some of this play out? I told you I was going to wrap up with a final question of asking you, what is good news to you? What, what, what is gospel to you? What, what is good news? Earlier, uh, we, we prayed for our kids. Would it not be good news to know that all of your kids follow Christ? That, that would be great news. That would be great news. Would it be good news to you to know that retirement is just around the corner and that you're going to be comfortable for the rest of your days? That would be great news. Nothing wrong with that news at all. But what is what is good news to you? And I don't want to, like there's probably a lot of things, and I don't know if I'll get through all of these right now, but there are a lot of things that our culture says is good news. That, that really in the framework of the gospel, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is not good news at all. And so I want to just talk about a few of those things. And so the world, the world declares the so-called good news of independence. Who, who doesn't want to be independent? Right? If I asked you to raise your hand, if, if you really want to rely on somebody for anything, pro- probably nobody's hand would go up. The so-called good news of independence says that I live for me and I live for me alone. How does this play out in our society. And, and I, my, my goal today is not to step on any toes, and, and if I do, I'll apologize now. But I want to bring the gospel to bear to some issues of our society. And one of those issues uh, is, is, is the issue of being pro-choice or pro-life. I'm an independent, independent person. And if I have a moment of indiscretion or a moment of irresponsibility or even a moment of willful indiscretion, and it causes something to happen inside of me that's going to affect my life in a negative way, then we're just going to get rid of it. Because I'm independent. And nobody's going to stop me from living my life the way that I want to live it. And society celebrates this. 
the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ declares that Jesus came not to be served. Why did he come? He came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He gave his life so that we could live. No one took it from him. He gave willingly and he gave it freely. Jesus didn't take anything from anybody so that he could have more. Jesus gave so that you and I could have something that we could never attain apart from him doing this for us. Jesus gave his life so that we could live, so that we could have true life. You see how these two messages are are in opposition to one another? What the world says is independence. What the gospel says that Jesus did for us. The world declares the so-called good news of power. My candidate sits in the Oval Office. My party is in power. Good news for Christians, right? We say things like, our party is protecting religious freedom. And religious freedom is a good thing. Our country was founded in part on religious freedom. That's not a bad thing. But the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ declares that God's power is made perfect in what? In political parties. God's power is made perfect in the person who sits in the Oval Office. No. The Bible says that God's power is made perfect in our weakness. It's in our utter dependence upon God in acknowledging our weakness that we find the strength and the power of God at work. And it doesn't matter who sits in the Oval Office. It doesn't matter what party is in power. It doesn't matter which way this vote goes or that vote goes. It doesn't matter if they take our guns or not. God's power is made perfect in the weakness of the Christian. Think about how how Jesus came to us. Did he show up on a horse with a sword and a shield? That, that might come later, but Jesus entered the scene as a baby. Jesus came to humanity in the most weak and feeble way imaginable. Jesus came to this earth needing to be fed, needing to be changed, needing to be cared for. That's how he came. And it boggled the minds of the people of his day. Like, this can't be the Messiah. This can't be the one that's going to save us all. A little baby that cries when it's hungry. And that's how Jesus came. It's in weakness that God's power is made perfect. The world declares the so-called good news of freedom. Who doesn't want to be free? I have the freedom according to our society, to do whatever I want, no matter how it affects you. I'm the one that's in control of my destiny. The good news of the Gospel declares that it's for freedom that Christ has set us free in Galatians chapter 5, but it goes on to say that if we use our freedom simply to indulge our flesh, then we're not free at all. That's not the freedom that Christ had envisioned for us, that we could just be gluttons that we can indulge whatever fleshly desires that we have. It's a false illusion of what freedom is. Quoting Tim Keller again, he says this, he says, because a fish absorbs oxygen from water, not air, it's free only if it's restricted to water. If a fish is quote-unquote freed from the river and put out on the grass to explore its freedom to move and soon live is destroyed. 
Real freedom isn't restrictionless. Real freedom is finding the right restrictions. Do you see how the narrative of our society is in opposition to the narrative of the gospel? It seems like a good thing to say that I'm free to do whatever I want, to be whoever I want to be, to indulge whatever I want to indulge in. But it's not good. The world declares the so-called good news of identity. And that message says that I and I alone determine who I am. You don't get to determine that for me. Where do we look for our identity? A cultural narrative right now is we look for identity in, in gender and sexuality. We look for identity in our jobs or our careers. Maybe, maybe some of us can relate to that. Right? What I do is, is who I am. We look for identity in, in what we own or what we've accomplished. These things, you have to know, will all fail us. God created us with, with a gender and God created us with a sexuality. God created us to work and to have jobs and God has given us the ability to own things, to, have, to buy houses and to buy cars and things like that. Those are His good gifts to us. But those things make lousy identities. What happens when you've had a long, successful career and, and you retire? What happens to your identity? It kind of messes with you, doesn't it? But when you don't do the things that you used to do, or you're not able to do the things that you used to do, it messes with you. What happens in terms of, of gender and sexuality when today, today I feel this way, tomorrow I feel a different way? Right? Our cultural narrative says that, that your gender and your sexuality can be fluid. That it's not, not only is it non-binary, not only is there... God's good design of man and woman, but, but there's all kinds of other things that you can be. And not only that, that you could be this today and you could be something else tomorrow. It's fluid. What does that do to your identity? It messes with it. If your identity is wrapped up in, in what you own, what happens when those things go away? Right? It messes with your identity. The good news of the gospel declares that follower for followers of Christ that our identity is in Christ. Hebrews 13 tells us that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That He doesn't change. And where this is good news for followers of Christ is that our identity is tied to something that's not fluid. Our identity is not tied to something that's here today and gone tomorrow. Our identity isn't tied to something that's going to diminish. That our identity is tied to Jesus Christ who never changes throughout all eternity, eternity forward and eternity past. Always been the same, always will be the same. The source of our identity is that we, as followers of Christ, have been adopted as God's children. That doesn't change. The world declares the so called good news of acceptance. Who doesn't want to be accepted? We all want to be accepted, don't we? For some of us, like that's all we want in life is just to be accepted. Somebody would look at us and say, I choose you. There's a cultural narrative that says that in the end, love wins. As a matter of fact, there's a popular book by that title, Love Wins. And it's, it's a false narrative, the gospel of Jesus Christ. But it's pretty easy to believe, like it's not a tough pill to swallow, to believe that in the end, we like all roads get you there. I wish that were true some days. 
That, that is not a hard pill to swallow. Acceptance, like our identity, is, is a fickle thing. What One day we have it, another, another day we don't. Anybody here on social media at all? What one, day, one day the world loves you. And you say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing, even if it's an accident, and everybody hates you. Right? Everybody's against you. This idea of acceptance that the world puts forward says that there's nothing wrong with me the way that I am. Like, I'm not broken. You just need to accept me for who I am, my, my, my flaws and all, if I even have any. Society would say that my greatest problem is not inside of me, that it's outside of me. And society would say that the solution to my problems lies within. And the Gospel of Jesus Christ says the complete opposite of that. The good news of the Gospel of Jesus Christ says your greatest problem is you. You are your greatest problem. And the Gospel of Jesus Christ tells us that you can't fix that. And especially as, as Westerners, as, as Americans, like we don't want to be told that we can't do anything. Tell me that I can't do it and I'll prove to you that I can and the gospel reminds us that, that you are your problem and you can't fix it. It's beyond you. And we think about that initially as bad news, but, but it's not actually bad news. This is, this is good news because God's acceptance is entirely different than human acceptance. The human basis for acceptance is, is often transactional. You do for me, I'll do for you. You're nice to me, I'll be nice to you. If you help me, I'll help you. You love me, I'll love you. Right? God's acceptance is not transactional at all. God's acceptance of us oftentimes is in spite of us, not because of us. God, God loves His children. God loves His people not because we're good enough, not because we're smart enough, not because we're strong enough, not because we've figured things out. God's love, we might say, is one way. Like God loves me and it doesn't matter if I love him back, like God's love for me is not affected by my reciprocation or the lack thereof. God simply chooses to love us because he wants to. And this is good news because I can't screw up God's love. I can screw up your love for me pretty quickly. It wouldn't take me long to screw up the way that you guys love me. I could, I could say the wrong thing right now and it would all be over. God's love is not like that. I can't screw it up. You can't screw it up. And that's why it's good news. And it's good news that, that even though I'm my biggest problem, it's good news that the solution is outside of me and, and that it's held with God. That's good news. That there's a God that loves me and there's a God that is going to redeem me from myself and my own flaws and my own failures and my own brokenness and my own sin. That's good news. My last Tim Keller quote of the day, if you can tell, I like this guy a lot. And he says this, he says, To be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved, well, that's a lot like being loved by God. It's what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense. It humbles us out of our self-righteousness. And it fortifies us for any difficulty that life can throw at us. How about that? Last one, the world declares the so-called good news of autonomy. 
or independence. I determine my own truth and I'm not accountable to anyone or anything. If you offend me, that's your problem. Because you are the one that offended me. You've wronged me and you should apologize to me. Again, social media, anyone? How about as an example, mass shootings are on the rise. Seems like hardly a week goes by where we don't read about somebody opening fire on a crowd or or now um, stabbing people with knives. That's something that's hitting the news quite a bit. And and there, there are many reasons that these things happen and many complex reasons that these things happen. I'm aware of that. But when you are the center of your own universe, when I'm the center of my own universe, it doesn't take much to connect the dots between somebody taking out a bunch of lives that have somehow offended them or wronged them. It's not hard to connect those dots, is it? The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ says that for the Christian that you're not your own, and I alluded to this earlier. You were bought with a price, the precious blood of Jesus, and you belong first and foremost to Him But like I said, it's not just you and Jesus. You belong, we belong to one another. We're valued by Him, but we belong to one another. And there's no such thing as the autonomous Christian. It never has been, nor will ever be, just you and Jesus, or just me and Jesus, if you're a Christian. And this is good news because life is hard when you're the center of your own universe. I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but but when you're the center of everything, life is hard. It's hard to please yourself. It's good news that you're not the center of your own universe. It's good news that, that Jesus loves you and that He has purchased you with the price of the shed blood of Jesus Christ, and it's good news that you belong to one another because He's the center of our universe. And there's no greater news than that. So as you can see, the the good news of the gospel that Paul is warning the Galatians about is in opposition to what our society, what our culture says is good news. There's, there's probably dozens more examples. That's all I could come up with and, and, and probably all we have time for today. But there's all kinds of examples of how the narrative of culture goes against the narrative of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so my encouragement to us today is that we would be faithful to the true gospel of Jesus Christ even if it's not pleasing to people and it's becoming less and less pleasing to the masses. There was a day not not that long ago where kind of sort of Judeo-Christian values were accepted in society and celebrated. Not not so now. Not so today. Paul would tell the Corinthians in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians verse 18 that the word of the cross is folly or foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. And so my challenge and encouragement to us today is to to stay faithful as Paul is warning us to the true gospel of Jesus Christ because in the end there's no greater news, there's nothing that's more freeing. We're never going to be more accepted by anyone or anything. We're never going to be more loved by anyone or anything. There's nothing that's going to have greater effect on the shape of our lives than the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what's cool about this particular message for today is that that we get to celebrate communion. We get to celebrate communion as a reminder of these things being true. And so since this is our our first communion, I want to just take a quick moment here and and, and talk for a second about what this is. This this might be new to some of you, maybe, maybe not to others. 
But the Bible tells us that communion is a way that we can visibly remember the truth of the Gospel that we talked about today. One book I read, the author said, this is like the big E on the eye chart. When you go into the doctor, no matter how bad your eyesight is, everybody can see the big E at the top of the eye chart, right? Communion is like the big E at the top of the eye chart. It's our visible reminder that the Gospel is true. And so... We, we take pieces of, of broken up bread as, as a reminder of the broken body of Christ. That even though that we're flawed, we're deeply flawed and we're deeply broken, we're deeply sinful, far more than we can imagine or care to admit. God is holy and He's righteous and He has solved this problem for us that how can unrighteous people relate to a holy God? Well, it's because of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus took upon Himself the punishment that you and I rightfully deserved for our sins. His body was broken. So that we could have relationship with God. And and we drink the juice as a reminder of the, the blood of Jesus that was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. God had established long ago in the Old Testament that it's the shedding of blood that causes the forgiveness of sins. And so there's all through the Old Testament there was a sacrificial system where people would sin and they'd have to go get a certain kind of an animal depending on how they sinned and they'd have to sacrifice this animal. And that was only as good until the next time they sinned. And if you're like me, like it's not, it's not long between times that we sin, is it? And so they would have to do this over and over and over. So there was this constant throughout the Old Testament of the Bible, the spilling of blood because of our sins. And so Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice. His blood is what cleanses us from our sins. And so we celebrate communion. We celebrate and commemorate the death of Jesus Christ because these things are true. And so so as we eat the bread and as we drink the cup, we remember what Jesus did for us. Again, the big E on the eye chart. This is, this is the gospel with, with some visibility to it, gospel with flesh to it so that we can be reminded, and we do this together so that we can corporately be reminded of who Jesus is and what he's done. And so what a cool thing that we get to celebrate, is that not? So as Pastor David said, we're, we're figuring out kind of how frequently we're going to do this, but we're probably going to work up to a couple of times a month that we celebrate communion together. And so here's how this is going to go. So, so Don, I, I didn't talk to you about this earlier, my apologies, but you wouldn't mind just strumming something on the guitar. And uh, in a moment I'm going to pray, and then we'll just have you guys uh, everybody can make their way up and you can grab your communion and go back to your chair and just take communion on your own. We're, we're not going to lead everybody through eating the bread and drinking the cup. You can do that uh, on your own. And then we're going to close uh, with a couple of songs after that. So let me pray for us. And then um, as the music starts, you guys are free to come up and grab your communion. Father, we're thankful for today. Thankful that you love us. Thankful for who you are. Thankful more than anything, that you've done for us the things that we could and would never do for ourselves. We're thankful for the truth of the gospel that reminds us that you have a better word, as we sang earlier today, than than the word of our society. That you accept us in ways that, that our society would never accept us. That you give us an independence and a freedom that we could never have in our society. That you love us in a way that we're not going to screw it up. We're thankful for those things being true. And so today, as we celebrate communion together, may we be reminded, just like that big E on the eye chart, that the gospel is true and that you have done for us the things that we could and would never do for ourselves. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.